Okay, Acts chapter 3. Just to recap on where we've been, first we start off this letter saying that it was written by Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor, he was not an apostle, and he wrote in some ways almost like a historian. And he has this two-part series. The first part was the Gospel of Luke that he wrote to this man named Otheopolis. And then Luke, or excuse me, the book of Acts is also written to the same man. The, the Gospel of Luke was written to talk about all that Jesus did from his birth until his death and resurrection. Acts is all that Jesus did ultimately after his resurrection and his ascension through his disciples. And so what he's communicating is Christ is still present with his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what we looked at is God's people were gathered together, as Jesus told them to, to wait for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit rained down upon God's people in Acts chapter 2. They began to speak in other languages. The men and women around them had no idea what was going on. Some were astonished. Some thought they were drunk. Peter got up and said, no, they're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock. That happens later. And then he began to explain, ultimately, that was a joke, all right? Some of you guys are like, wait, is the church? No, 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 all right. He began to explain what the mighty works that God was doing through the church. And then after that, we'll begin to look last week at the spirit-filled church and the practices or habits that they established. And what were the things that nourished them as a community? And there were four things we looked at. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' uh, teachings. That was scripture. That they were fellowshipping or doing life together. And that they continued to pray. And then ultimately, they broke bread. Meaning they ate together, but not just break bread, but they also took communion. Those are those elements that we take every week, remembering the death and then also uh, the shed blood of Christ Jesus on our behalf. Well, what it said is, as the church continued to do this, that there was miraculous signs being done through the apostles. And what we see in chapter 3 is one of those miraculous signs that are done through the apostle Peter and the apostle John. And then they, they heal a man who had never been able to walk before, and God gave him the ability to walk. And then afterwards, they explained what was going on, it, it ultimately highlighting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, this evening with our time. But before we get into God's word, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to open up the scriptures that we may see and believe. Father, we thank you that your son Jesus is present with us now by your Holy Spirit. That he's present with us, Lord, through the teaching of the scripture that your spirit would illuminate and that we may see and be formed as a community, Lord, centered around the work of Christ, nourished and guided by your word. So I ask, as always, that you'd remove me, that we may see the cross and the empty tomb and the power in which you give us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the words would be clear. Um, in a way is that you could use it, Lord, to grow us as a body, as people, to draw people to yourself for the first time, and those of us who do know you, to call us to repentance and faith afresh in Christ. Lord, we thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So about 10 years ago, almost to the date, I got a phone call um, from a friend of ours, a mutual friend of another guy that was a teammate of mine. And this particular friend of mine um, had been hit by a drunk driver. Right out here by the McDonald's here, uh, excuse me, sorry, forgot my context. Right out here by the Sprouts over here on McClintock and Southern, all right? And, and there's, uh, he was in the hospital in critical condition, and he was in a coma. And so I was like the only Christian that my friends knew, because when we were friends, I wasn't a Christian, then I became a Christian, and so I was like the go-to person. And this, this gal, Brandy, our friend, calls and said, you got to go see Chad, he's in the hospital, you got to pray for him. Um, and so I would go to the hospital every single day, and his mom had come in town from California, because that's where he was from. Um, and I would sit with his mom because he couldn't talk, he couldn't move. I mean, he was, he, he was, he was in a coma. Um, and we, for about eight or nine straight days, almost two weeks, we were there. And then one um, evening, I was there with his mom just sitting next to her, and the doctor came in. And I think the doctor presumed that I was uh, family. And so he 
said something to the mom, asked her a question, a very personal question that you would ask only the family in that situation, and, and primarily was asking, what did she think about ultimately life for him? Um, and, and the hard decision of whether to terminate life or not, it was very difficult. And so I'm in the room, and I'm like, should I leave? And she looks at me, and she goes, what do you think? I'm like, what? what, what, what? <laughs> I'm a substitute teacher. <laughs> like, what? I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. I'm just here to pray, right? And, um, and I went home that night, and I prayed, and I believe, I totally believe this, that the Spirit of the Lord was telling me that God wanted to heal her son. And I knew it had to be the Spirit because Satan doesn't work like that, so it had to be God. And so I came the next day, and I, um, I didn't tell his mom because I was really nervous. I didn't want to be like, hey, God told me I'm going to heal your son because, I, one, I was just nervous. I didn't know if that was really God or not. And so I began to pray for him. And if you've ever been in the hospital with someone who's been in a coma, oftentimes they will move, but it's not something that's voluntary. It doesn't mean that their brain is actually functioning. It's involuntary movement. And so far, he was able to sometimes move his right arm involuntary, but his whole left side was not moving. And, and you know, nudged by the Spirit, put my hands, laid my hands on him, and was praying. And then underneath my breath, in the name of Jesus, Lord, heal him. And as my eyes were closed and I'm on his, my hand is on him, his arm reaches over and he grabs my arm. <laughs> And I woke up, I mean, like, I was, I was already awake, but I opened my eyes. <laughs> I opened my eyes, and I was scared, right? Why was I scared? Because he hadn't moved for, like, two weeks, and it was like, yo, bro, why are your hands on me, right? And, um, and the Lord had answered the prayer. He opened up his eyes. He began to talk. And, you know, they called it a medical miracle, right, in the, in the hospital. But I'm like, this is a miracle of God. It was absolutely amazing. And the reason why I share that story is this. If you hear that and you go, wow, that's a really cool story that Ricardo just told us. Okay, you don't get it. If you hear that story and you say, wow, that's maybe a sign of what God can do if we believe and we pray, maybe you're getting close. But if you begin to see that story in light of what we've been learning in Acts, and that is that Acts in itself shows us and gives us how God is fulfilling the promises that he had to his people from long ago through the prophets that in the last days or in the end times that he would pour out his spirit and that his, the sons and daughters and slaves and so forth will prophesy and that we would see these miraculous signs as he authenticates the gospel in such a way that it shows that God's care for us is not only in the way that he saves souls, but it's physical as well as spiritual. If you begin to look at it that way, you go, maybe, maybe um, as Christians we we might see some of these things a little bit more. But if we're honest, most of us are led by skepticism more than we are by faith. Like, like most of us, because of our experience, goes, I, I've kind of prayed for things and they haven't happened, and I've heard that same story go the other way, and myself included, that we have not because we ask not, and yet God, by his spirit, is still miraculously moving in ways that we would not even understand. So after the first two services, I, I shared this, the same story with a lady come to me, and I didn't even know this. I, when I was out of town two weeks ago in Vancouver, uh, her son had some stomach issue where he was not able to eat for uh, eight straight days and so forth. And so she's like, we're reading through the book of James, and was like, hey, we should bring him to the elders. And we brought him to the elders, and we prayed for him, and he was healed like, immediately. We took him to the doctor, he's healed. And I'm like, why didn't they tell me this? Why would the elders not tell me this? What else are they holding back from me, right? And so it was amazing. She goes, I just want you to tell the story of that. And the whole time I'm going, we just have to ask God to do these things. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. He's a sovereign Lord, but he's the only one who can. Amen? You don't believe that. You just said amen because I said amen. Okay, so here, here's what we have in the story is that God begins to show this miracle, but the greatest miracle is not just healing this man. The greatest miracle ultimately is God love, loves for us and that he sent his son. And we're going to see that Peter um, highlights that in this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth 
was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate. Sorry, guys, I can't read tonight. They laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And so here's the context here. Um, they're at the temple, which one shows that they continue to live their daily life. Though they had, the Spirit had been poured upon them, though they had believed in Jesus, though they were this new, fresh community, they didn't pull away from their everyday culture. So they still went to the temple and did what Jewish people did. Um, I, I point that out because sometimes within the church, as we, we see people who become Christians, who become new believers, and we t almost pull them out of their normal life, and, and we're like, you don't want to be in the regular world, now come to our world. And like, what do we do here? We just learn cheesy things to say as Christians, you'll figure it out really, really soon, right? It's really awkward. Instead of just going, what the early church did was they continued to be themselves. So they find themselves doing what Jewish people did. They went to the temple twice a day for prayer. One would be at 9 in the morning, one would be at 3 p.m. The story that we see here is at 3 p.m., we have Peter and we have John, two of the apostles of the church. They're at the temple. Now, there's the man, which we don't know his, his name, but we do know this man had been lame since birth. And that means from the time that he was born from his mother's womb, that he was not able to walk. And that his friends would carry him to the temple, and he would ask for alms, or he would ask for money. He would ask for some change, like, can you spare a change, can I get a cigarette, something like that, right? And then people would give him alms. Like, he was used to that. So this particular day, his friends are walking with him, carrying him to the temple, and Peter and John are there, and they look at him, it says, and then they say to him, look at us. Like, he wasn't even asking them for alms. He was asking everybody else, and they said, look at us. And so, you know, if you're asking for alms and somebody says, look at me, you're thinking, oh, they're probably going to give me something. And so they look at him, and Peter goes, I don't have any money. And it's like, man, why would you ask me to look at you then, right? Like, you know my hustle right here. What are you doing? Then he says, but I don't have silver, I don't have gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, meaning in the powerful name of Jesus, rise and walk. That, that I don't know what made Peter say this. I don't know if this was something that Peter was doing. I don't know if Peter knew when he went to the temple that day, like we're going to pray and we're going to heal this man. John, let's go. Check this out. It's about to be dope. Right? I have no idea how that went down other than he says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk, and then he walks over to the man and takes him by the right hand, and then he lifts him up, and all of a sudden the man can walk. Like, if you've ever broken a bone before, you've ever had a cast, like, you know as soon as you get that cast off, even though the bone could be, res could be reset and healed, you don't have very much movement. In fact, there there's muscular atrophy. Imagine if you've never used those muscles ever. Like, there's no way to make sense of this medically. Like, this is absolutely a miracle. And, and look what it says about the man here in verse 7. It says, And he took him up by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. So immediately God made him strong. And leaping up and stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Okay, you see this? Like, he's excited. Like, it says leaping twice. And when you look up leaping, what it means in English, it means leaping, right? Like, he's, like, really, really excited. And so would you. Like, you would be excited. Like, just, he's never been able to walk. My assumption is, if you've never been able to walk, 
And you can start walking. At first, you just, like, test it out to see, like, this is what walking in. But immediately, you have swag, right? Like, it's like, I'm going to do, I've been doing this like I've been doing this forever. Like, you know, I've been seeing everybody else walk. Now I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk now, too. And just imagine the people looking at him. Imagine the shorties or the ladies he wanted to holler at, and they wouldn't talk to him before, right? He's like, back then, you didn't want me. Now I'm walking you all on me, right? He's like, you can hit me up. <laughs> Dial 280-334-8004. Mike Jones, I think, was his name, right? So we have... Those of you guys don't get that hip-hop reference, that's all right. It's not for you. So here's, here's, what, here's what we have here. A miracle. And this man is excited, and he's praising God. It says immediately he gets up, he walks, and then he walks in the temple, and he begins to praise God. This had to have been exciting. So I, I don't have any physical impairments, not, not, not yet. Um, the only thing that I have personally is I'm, I'm colorblind, and I'm like, like real colorblind, not like I don't see your skin color and you're like, like I see you, you, you see me, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to get glasses one day and it's going to correct my, oh, I never knew you guys were white. So like here's, here's the deal. I was talking to a friend and he told me about these glasses that people wear that, have, that are colorblind and how they can see color. This is three weeks ago. So I went online and I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. Not yet. And so I went online and I Googled it, and I, you, you have a video of people trying it on, people who are colorblind. So for me, orange and red, red and green, green and red, green and red. Like, there's a lot of colors that I just don't really see. And um, they were showing people put these glasses on, and their, their experience, like, their reaction was amazing. Like, one guy was crying, right? A little much. But he was crying, like, because he could see colors. It was, it was, it was amazing. Um, either that was real or really good marketing, either or, I know that I might try to at least try these glasses on. I couldn't imagine not being able to walk and all of a sudden being able to walk. Here's the thing, too. If you read in the scriptures, if you were paralyzed in this way, you weren't able to go into the proper place of worship in the temple. Like, there was a special place for you. And so when he rises up with Peter and John, he goes in praising God, and for the first time, he walks into the place of the temple where he gets to worship God, where everybody else he's known has been able to worship God. And, and not only that you see the holistic nature of the gospel is, not only is he just able to walk, he probably will be able to help others. Like he no longer needs his friends to carry him. There might be somebody else that he can help carry as well now that he's been able to be restored. And so you see this beautiful picture, and, and then it says this. There's a response, verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Very same language that happened in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit is poured upon God's people. That they were amazed and there was wonder at what happened to him. Like some people are amazed at this, but not everybody's excited about this. Remember, there have been some haters of Jesus and his followers, and there always will be. So last week I'm watching the Super Bowl because the Super Bowl is on, so I watched it. I don't even really like football, but I'm watching the game last night or last week, and I don't like the Patriots, right? And part of it is... I just don't like him. And every time I hear, well, Tom Brady's got a great story, he's so relatable. I'm like, to who? Right? Like every, oh, most people I know were born in Northern California. Most people I know went to Michigan and played football, got drafted in the NFL, have multiple Super Bowls, married to a supermodel, and a millionaire. Yeah, very relatable, right? So anyways, I'm watching the first half of the game, and if you don't care about football, that's okay. Um, the first half of the game, the Patriots are losing. I'm like, yes. 
the Lord is on our side, right? I'm not even a Falcons fan. And then after halftime, like, one thing happens and one thing happens, and then you just know, like, it, they're going to win. And that's going to be another story about Tom Brady. And here's the deal. I hate to say it, but he's probably the best ever, right? And it bothers me, and I'm going, dang it. Here's why. If you know a Patriots fan, it's the most annoying person you know, and then Seahawks fan. Right? And so for whatever reason, the way that they are, it's like we cannot stop this, and they keep winning. Okay, so think about the people who hated Jesus. They wanted Jesus out of here, and so they killed him. Three days later, he's alive. That's a problem. But then they, they figure out, they hear 40 days later, he ascends to the heaven. But then now he's got all of his followers, and they think, okay, maybe we'll shut them up in a room. And then they go from 120, the Lord pours out the Spirit, Peter preaches, 3,000 get baptized. And it's like, okay, we thought they were done. Now they're doing healings, and now the Lord is working through them healing. It's like, what is going on? It's like, we can't get rid of them. They're like roaches. Like, like they don't die. They just keep multiplying, right? It's a problem. And they want to know, how is this happening? Because there's no context for them they don't believe there's context for this happening. But Peter begins to explain to them, the same God that you guys believe in is the same God we believe in. The problem is we believe in the Son that he has sent and you don't. Therefore, you don't understand the love of what God is doing. You don't understand the miraculous power. You don't understand the restoration. You don't understand forgiveness because you've rejected Jesus. Here's what he says in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to him in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you start at, stare at this, at us, as though by our own power or piety that we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and the presence of you all. So Peter, again, like chapter 2, after God did something, filled them with the Spirit, that he begins to speak. And this time, very similar, he gets up and he goes, man, why, why, are, why are you guys amazed at this? He goes, one, this was not us. This was something God did through us. This was not on our piety. This is not because of how uh, holy we are. This was completely on the Lord. Now, notice what he does. He says, here's who did this. He didn't even just say Jesus. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Like, this same God who you say you believe in is doing the work that you don't get. And the reason why you don't get it is because you denied the very one in whom he sent. Now, what Peter is doing here is he's trying to get them to see that this religion is not a new religion. That this, this community is not necessarily a new community, but what seems to be new is actually really old. Like, we get this in some weird way in fashion. Like, you've noticed, like, fashion just keeps, like, recycling itself. You guys notice that? You guys are probably so young, you don't really know it yet. But my, my son tells me now he wants a flat top, right? He goes, yeah, I want a flat top. I'm like, you know that, like, that went out, like, 20-something years ago, right? 
but it's back now. You see little black kids with flat tops. And I'm like, okay, that's what we're doing again. All right. So me and my wife and my two sons, because they have to live with this for now, um, we live near ASU. And I see a lot of the college students. And the mom jeans that you wear up to here and that are stonewashed are in. Okay, that was also an 80s thing, just saying. This thing that you think is new is actually really old. And I'm not the fashionista. I'm just saying. I'm just observing. What Peter is doing, this has nothing to do with what Peter was doing, but I just wanted to say that. What Peter is doing here is he's saying this religion is an old religion. Now, truthfully, in, in the Roman Greco world, in order for a religion to have validity, it had to have longevity, meaning there was experience. And what they're trying to show is this is not just a sect of something. This is not something that just came out of nowhere. If you look at the prophets, you look at the wisdom literature, if you look at all that the Torah, which means the law, taught, it spoke into the day of Christ. That the Old Testament is not something that we just go, oh, we can't really understand it. We need the New Testament. We don't have the New Testament without the Old Testament. The Old Testament promises the Messiah. The Old Testament points to what ultimately conclusion would be. The Old Testament has all these broken covenants on the people of God's side. The New Testament finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And so what Peter tells them is going, something happened. Like, you don't believe this even though this is our God because at least four charges he gives them. One, you denied Jesus before Pilate. You handed him over to death. You rather had received a murderer and instead had kill the author of life, and you co-signed on his death. He's letting him know you are guilty. You're guilty. Like, this is on you. And I guarantee you there's probably somebody in the crowd going, well, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't do it. Like, I knew some people who was there, but, I mean, I wasn't really there. Not me, right? He's saying, all of you guys, and there's not really a good language in Greek or Hebrew and English, so we got to dig deep into our southern roots and says, y'all all guilty, Right? All y'all guilty. In every language you can say, you guys, whatever it is, every single person is guilty, not just because of sexual promiscuity and so forth when we think about sin. It's the denying of Jesus, that you don't believe him to be the author of life, the Messiah. God sent one God with us in the flesh. And he says, you denied this. And he gives it to him. In essence, he's telling people who are devout believers of God, you don't believe in God. <laughs> Like, you don't believe in the one who is sent, and you're guilty for it. Well, verse 17, he says this. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. Okay, Peter keeps doing this, and I, I have to highlight this. He keeps letting them know, guys, you should know this because this was prophesied about. The prophet spoke of this. And Peter is not just, the Spirit is not just coming in Peter and Peter saying things that he didn't know. He's saying all that Jesus taught him. Remember Jesus saying, don't worry about what you will say when they bring you before courts and rulers because the Holy Spirit will bring back to your memory. Meaning this is something that Jesus had taught him. In fact, if you look at Luke um, chapter 24, verses 44 to 48, it's going to come up on the screen here. Then he said to them, this is Jesus now, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now, this is after Jesus' resurrection. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, when you hear the, um, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's saying all of literature, all, um, excuse me, all of scriptures. That was the Old Testament for them. Because Moses represented the Torah, which was the law. Um, anything of the prophets represented the, the prophets speaking. And then Psalms represented the, the wisdom literature, like, like Psalms, Proverbs, Job, etc., Ecclesiastes. He goes, they all must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus is written that the Christ should suffer on the, on, and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. Like if you could recall, that's exactly what Jesus said in chapter one. You will be witnesses. He says, no, you don't have to go become a witness. This is something that is indicative, something that has happened. You are witnesses. Are you going to be good ones or are you going to be bad ones? And when you witness, he says, it's going to be in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to all of Judea, from all of Judea to Samaria, from Samaria all the way around the end of the earth to Tempe. It didn't say that, but that's what he meant. And so what we have here is Peter saying, this is something that was fulfilled in Scripture, and ultimately you're guilty. But, verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, uh, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So he says, here's the grace. God has sent Jesus that you may repent. So we have going at the same time, um, human responsibility as well as divine design. That you are the ones who delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Like you're, 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 you're guilty, you're complicit on this death, yet it was God's plan that he would be sent to die that we may have forgiveness of sins, that there may be refreshing and there may be restoration. So it was, therefore, since God in his love has sent his son, the ultimate miracle that God put on flesh to come to reconcile and redeem all things in the work and through the work of Christ Jesus on our behalf. He says, since then, therefore, repent. And repent, first and foremost, is not just a change of direction. Oftentimes we say that, the repent is a change of direction. First and foremost, repentance is a change of mind. And here's what I mean. In churches, Sometimes we give off the impression that what repentance is, is behavior modification. And if you want to be a Christian, you need to do good Christian things, and you need to talk a certain way, you need to walk a certain way, don't do this, don't touch that. And you know what? That's just behavior modification, and you don't even need the Holy Spirit for that. We all have friends that are morally better than us, if we're just being honest. For yourself, yes, they're better than me. What he's talking about is the Spirit of God opening up your mind and your hearts and your eyes to see something beautiful in Christ, that there's a change of direction in which you are living your life. There's a particular belief or ideology that you find yourself living, and you are very comfortable in it. But yet there's a striking of the heart that says something is missing. There's a cavity in my heart and can only be satisfied by nothing in this world. I must be created for another world, to quote C.S. Lewis. And that other world has come in the person of Jesus. And so here's a visual of what this could look like. So this past New Year's, my in-laws afforded us the opportunity to go to Disney World. And we're in Disney World, and I'm not a big Disney uh, fan, but, but like, it's fun to be there. And as you can imagine, Disney World on New Year's, it's like people from all over the world at Disney World. Um, they're happy and smiling, so you get a crazy place, scary place, right? And so we're walking around, and every so often, it's probably had four, happened four or five times, my oldest son would just wander off, um, and we would just watch him. And I would just sit there and let him go. See how long he was going to walk before he knew that he was not with us anymore. Hey, wait, 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 hold, don't, don't go anywhere. Let's, let's see this. Give me some popcorn. Right? And he would just keep walking and walking. He'd be hundreds, hundreds of yards away. And then he would get somewhere, and he'd look up, and he'd look around, and he'd have that scared look like, oh, no, I'm lost in Disney. This could be purgatory. 
right? Like, what, what, what am I going to do? And, and then we, Noah, Noah, and he would see us, and then he would, like, make a beeline, and he'd run over to us. And, I'm, and I tell him, listen, buddy, this has happened too many times. It's kind of funny, but you won't get lost if you keep your eyes on us, right? Do you want me to hold your hand? No, I actually don't want to hold your hand. Um, it's hot. Um, how about this? Just keep your eyes on us, and you'll never be lost. The picture of repentance is we're finding our way away from God. We could be doing good things. We could be doing things that seem really bad, but we're not connected to Christ. What the Spirit of God does is awaking us in such a way by his sovereign love, mercy, and grace that we can now see the Lord, giving us the ability by the Spirit to make a beeline towards Christ. And if we keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, we will never be lost. This whole notion that we say you have to find God, you don't have to find God. He's not lost. And he's never been lost. We are the ones who were lost. We need God to find us. The question is, do we want to be found? Because the scriptures clearly teach us, even here, that God has sent his son in such a way that we may be found. And all we need to do by the spirit of God, by faith, is look and see what God has given us in Jesus and then make our entire lives a beeline towards Christ. And that is in every area of life that Christ now becomes the author and perfecter of our faith as we trust in Jesus. And he says, when that happens, he says, there is forgiveness and that's total forgiveness. Past, present, and future. That there's refreshing meaning. There is a new new life that has begun by the breaking in of the Holy Spirit in which Jesus promised. Total forgiveness, refreshing, and then lastly, he says that Christ will come again, that there will be full restoration of heaven and earth, and that all the believers who believed in Christ Jesus will be ushered into this new kingdom of which God is establishing, and it's good news. And it's all started with Peter saying, I healed this man who had never been able to walk, but ultimately, that was because God is after you to get your attention and your life under his lordship in such a way that he may heal you and the totality of you and the world for every single person who would believe. Amen? So, so, so Peter proclaims that, and he's telling them as Jewish people. Remember, this is primarily Jewish people because God had to, as he said, gather Israel, and then we're going to have the Jews, or excuse me, the Gentiles enfolded into the church in just a few chapters. Well, Peter concludes here. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who denies, or excuse me, every soul that does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and your covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Is what he's saying. It's continuing the same story that you've been a part of, that God spoke from Samuel to all the prophets and even to Abraham. And what he told Abraham was through your seed, or through your offspring, I'm going to bless the nation. And ultimately, the seed of Abraham is the person of Christ. And then Christ draws in the people of Israel to restore the covenant of which they broke. And Jesus says the new covenant is now the covenant of his love. The covenant before was many covenants, but primarily God did his part, but Israel didn't do his part. But God in his sovereign love and grace in Christ Jesus has made it such a way that the only part is only done by Christ and it's already finished. And everybody who would receive that by faith would now be a part of his covenant. And through this Christ, 
and ultimately through the people of Israel, that he began to bless every family, another word is every ethnicity, that he would include all in his good news that he's redeeming the world through the work of Jesus Christ. When we look at this, there's at least one implication we have, and that is we have to ask the question, do we actually believe? Is Jesus and the work of the gospel something that radically transforms every area of our life, or is it something that we believe in just for the forgiveness of sins? Do we understand the refreshing? Do we understand the restoring? Are we a community that's shaped and fashioned in such a way that we live out the forgiveness, that we live out the, ref- the refreshing love of God, and we point towards restoration in the way that we live, act, work, and play, that we are a display of what God is doing in this world? When it comes to the miraculous games, things of God and the mundane things of God, do we find ourselves believing in the work of Jesus or believing more in our hands? Are we more likely to say silver and gold we will give because we don't know what we can give in the name of Jesus? In order for us to be a community that we see in the scriptures, it starts first with not just getting our act together, but ultimately having our belief so centered in the person of Christ, so rooted in the community that he's given us, so nurtured by his word, that when we break the bread and we drink the wine, we are ultimately being nourished by the work of Christ to be the people of Christ, to be the display of God and the particular community that God has us. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. Father, we ask that you would give us faith to believe And we pray with the man in the Gospels of Mark, Lord, that we believe, but help us with our unbelief. That Jesus, when you are Savior and Lord, that, Lord, that you would be Lord over all things, over our relationships, that you'd be Lord over our vocations, Lord over our recreation, and also Lord over our creativity. Lord over the things that we say and the things that we don't say, the things that we do and the things that we don't do. That our whole lives would be centered around the truth that is wrapped up in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd fill us and anoint us with your spirit as a community, that we would be a display people in this city and the cities around us and throughout the end of the earth, that God is good because you have sent your son Jesus and we know him and we would hold out the hope of the gospel in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.